It's amazing this morning that there's a prophetic theme that's coming through. And <coughs> clearly God's speaking and, and um, I think clearly we're listening. And the fact that it's, it's coming through is being confirmed in multiple places. And I just want to start off with a scripture that wasn't part of my intention, but I think just in light of what we're speaking through, and, and where God's going, I just want to encourage us. And it's, it's out of Isaiah 43, and it starts in verse 10, and it says, You are my, witness, my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand our work and who can turn it back. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in their ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings uh, forth chariots and horses and army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. I just felt from this in particular, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. And I feel that there's something in that for us, that maybe there's a thing of the former things that we need to let go of and surrender. Emmanuel said there might be parts of our hearts that we feel, Lord, what can you do with this? It says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And I think what we've seen this morning in this prophetic message that's coming through is God is doing something new. And he's saying to us, are you perceiving what I'm doing? There's a newness that's coming. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He does it. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. God's doing something new, and He's the one that brings it to completion. He's the one that's busy doing something. Thinking the fact that we as a pioneering church in this region can't expect to find infrastructure in a place that has yet to be pioneered. Pioneers are there to lay infrastructure. They're there to go ahead and, and in the going ahead, so they there go and establish and create and build so that there's a place for others to come and settle after. That's the beauty of pioneers. That's the beauty of those who go ahead. And we have the privilege of being those people. This morning I want to speak on leadership. And, and I just feel that there's something of this on each one of us and and you might be sitting there saying I'm not a leader I don't lead people so what does this have to do with me the reality is if we are children of God we are leaders and and we can lead in so many different varying capacities 
raising children is leadership. Being a good friend to those around us is leadership. Guiding people through difficult times is leadership. Loving the unlovable is leadership. And each one of us has a role to play in leadership. I was looking out at the kids' ministry through the window there, and, and I'm seeing the establishing of leadership over their lives. As God starts to work and starts to mature and starts to raise up. So I've got, an, I've got a saying for leadership, and my girls know it well. Shane Kayla the other day was sharing about this, that, um, that her history teacher asked her, what are the characters of a leader? And, and she says that they're thick-skinned and soft-hearted. Now my girls know this, they've known it since the big. that for me, that's our, our defining thing as a leader, is you've got to be thick-skinned and soft-hearted. Why? Thick-skinned so we're not easily offended, and soft-hearted so that we can love people. Because the converse of that is you become soft-skinned and thick-hearted or hard-hearted. So what happens is we're easily offended and we've got a hard heart towards people. And, and we can't operate as Christians in that capacity. So what do we have to do? Well, we're going to be a people who are thick-skinned so that we can guard the hearts that's going to be there to love those around us. I was chatting to a lady this week and she was talking about amazing things happening in this one place. But there was something that was missing, and it was love for people. We cannot be a people who don't have a love for people. So we need to be those who, when challenging times come, and the, the opportunity for offense, it's got to be like water off a duck's back. I love the expression, we've taken offense. It's an active decision to pick up and grab hold of. And the Bible doesn't give us room for that. And I'm asking us, if, if we are walking in that, that let's work on that and go to the Father, go to God and say, Lord, we need to sort this out. Because I can't operate in a place of offense and love people with a sincere heart in the process. Secure and confident leaders release secure and confident leaders. Insecure and hierarchical leaders suppress leaders. The result of suppressing leaders is either breaking the leader or forcing them to go around you. We need to ensure that we become a springboard for leaders and not an obstacle. Shonae's dad always said of his children that he wants to be there for them to stand on his shoulders so they can be higher and see further than he ever did before. If he can do that, he knows he's raised them well and given them a platform to be more successful. The beautiful thing about as we go through the generations in, in, as Christians is we start to establish a greater foundation for our children to reach further heights than we could ever have dreamed of. And, and, and my encouragement is I want to be a people who we allow those who come after us to stand on our shoulders and we root for them to do better than we did. We root for them to take the accolades. We root for them to go further, to do more, to be more, because we are secure in who God's created us to be. We want to raise and release leaders. And a friend of mine who has uh, six steps that he applies to every meeting that they have in their church. And he says, if a meeting does not align with at least one of these steps, they omit them from what they're doing. Does it prepare the bride of Christ? 
Because in order to prepare the bride, we need to make disciples. So does it make disciples? In order to make disciples, we need to plant New Testament churches. Does this facilitating planting New Testament churches? In order to plant New Testament churches, we have to raise leaders. Is this something that raises leaders? And if we want to raise leaders, we have to have a strong priesthood. So is this something that equips the priesthood? And lastly, if we want to have a strong priesthood, we need to reach the lost. Is this something that reaches the lost? And he says, if it doesn't tick at least one of those boxes, they don't do it as a church. Because this is their litmus test to fulfill the mandate that God has given them. I think there's something so beautiful in that. And, and we need to be a, a group of people who are intentionally going from preparing the bride of Christ to reaching the lost and everything in between. And we're going to lead people in this. But how do we do that? And I feel that there's something in the, the biblical model of leadership that we have to look at and apply to our lives. And we can learn so many beautiful principles. In Titus 1 verse 1, Paul says, A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So I, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we see that he's taken something of the leadership of Christ and he's applied it to his own life. And if we are going to imitate a leader, there is no better leader to imitate than Jesus himself. Ephesians 5 verse 1 to 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved. Dearly beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we get to be imitators of him as dearly beloved children. So if we're going to imitate a leader, if we're going to walk in the steps of a leader, may we walk in his. Now I want to read a passage of scripture. I'm going to go through a couple of others as well and look at some of the risks of leadership on some of the, the principles that we can apply to our lives, the way we position ourselves in leadership. And hopefully as a result of this, what we will find is our influence over people leads them to a greater understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is. John 13 from verse 1 to 20 and the heading of this is Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Listening to a leadership podcast a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about the paradoxes of leadership and how really good leaders, the ones with the X factor, have these opposite, seemingly conflictive paradoxes in their life, these extremes that operate simultaneously. And this guy said that one of them in the life of Jesus is he was fully God and fully man simultaneously. The two seem to be almost opposing. He spoke about the fact that how you have to be confident and humble simultaneously. And we see that in the life of Jesus. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The most important parts of leadership is loving people. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus had no doubts about who he was and his identity. It didn't come into question. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied around it at his, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. We've just heard that Judas had already planned the betrayal of Jesus, and Jesus knew it. And yet he chose to wrap his outer garments around him, gets on his knees and begins to wash the, the feet of the disciples, including Judas. He kneeled down and washed the feet of the one who was yet to betray him. There's something in that heart that challenges me to my very core. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Peter had a revelation of the Lordship of Christ. and He's saying, how can you, Lord, wash my feet? Who am I to deserve this? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, don't understand now, but afterwards you'll understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It's a beautiful prophetic declaration of the righteousness of Christ that's bestowed upon us through the blood of Jesus. Our access to the presence of the Father is based on the fact that He chooses to wash us. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but wash also my hands and my head. If you washing me gives me access to you and I get included in what you are busy with, wash me all. Don't just stop at my feet. What an incredible heart that Simon Peter has. I love, I love this man's vulnerability, how raw he is. He, he, he messes up, but man alive, he's got a heart to please the Father. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need a wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. He knew that, yet he chose to continue washing the feet of Judas anyway. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you not understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for, uh, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Therefore be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. He's given us an example that we too can imitate. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
You are my witnesses, going back to Isaiah 43, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Yeah, Jesus says he has done this. He's telling you ahead of time what is to take place so that you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So whoever receives us receives Jesus, and whoever receives Jesus receives the Father. We get to carry the royal seal representing him in everything that we do. You are my witnesses, says in Isaiah 43. We get to witness as to who he is. Now something happens that I really feel that Jesus has given us a platform through which to see how do we lead and how do we lead well. I said earlier, Jesus had no uh, qualms about who he was. He understood his identity, son of God. He had come from God and was going back to God. He knew. So first and foremost, he knew his identity. But what did he do in his identity? He positioned himself as a servant. If we have a true revelation of our identity as sons, co-heirs with Christ, what we do is we can walk in the confidence of that identity and still position ourselves as a servant. Paradox of confidence and humility. His heart was that of a leader in love. And his function was Messiah. Jesus' identity was not Messiah. His function was Messiah. His identity was God. And I think too often in church what we do and even in the world, is we function in a position, and that becomes our identity. It becomes a functional identity. We look at President Obama, is the former president of the United States. His identity is functional based on a thing that he fulfilled previously. For the sake of time, I'm going to cut through a little bit of it, but... David was one of the greatest leaders we see in the, the Old Testament. However, there was a time where his army was in battle and he was sitting up on the roof of his house, looking down, he sees Bathsheba and he has this moment. It says, it happened, this is in 2 Samuel 11, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and once said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. The king's responsibility was to be on the front lines with his army. But what happened is David, who was all familiar with positioning himself as a servant, started to allow the position and the function of a king to supersede that. And he was in a place where he should not have been. So David goes and he sends for Uriah the Hittite because he gets feedback that Bathsheba's pregnant. So now he needs to do this conspiracy cover-up to try and figure out how does he, how does he 
fix this situation because he's messed up. So what he does is he calls Uriah and his intention is to get Uriah to be at his home so Uriah can sleep with Bathsheba and impregnate, well, impregnate her and he can have this massive cover-up so that they can kind of kind of cover up what, what's happened and pretend that Uriah is the father and they can carry on with their business and no one is any the wiser. There's something about the character of Uriah that really pours salt in the wound of David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwells in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my, my wife as you live and as your soul lives I will not do this thing he comes home and he has this opportunity to be with his wife and he says I cannot in good conscience enjoy the fruit of this time when my people are out on the front line suffering. I will live as they live and I will do as they do. For they are yet to have the privilege of coming back. It's amazing how this should have been David's response in the first place. How can I lie in my house when my people are on the front lines? And yet Uriah the Hittite comes through and this is his response. So David sends him back to war, sends a letter to Joab and says, put Uriah in the front lines, make sure he's as close to the, the, the battle as possible and ensure that he gets killed. It's amazing how David's position as king clouded his ability to lead. 2 Samuel 23 verse 39, David names his mighty men. In verse 39, it says there, Uriah the Hittite. You don't know this was one of David's closest people. These are one of the guys that were named as David's mighty men, the closest to him. Uriah the Hittite. And yet he stabbed him in the back and sent him off to war to get killed. 2 Samuel 12, Nathan rebukes David. And the Lord said to Nathan, to David, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the rich one and the poor one. The rich man had met very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. 
Nathan said to him, David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wife your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but i will do this thing before all of israel and before the sun david said to nathan i have sinned against the lord and nathan said to david the lord also has put away your sin you shall not die nevertheless because of this deed you have utterly scorned the lord the child who is born to you shall die then nathan went to his house david is a great leader david when he had the opportunity to go face Goliath, walked out and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who speaks against my God? In that place, David operated from the position of a servant, had the heart of love and a leader, and functioned in the function that God had called him to. God anoints him as king, and he allows the position of king to supersede that of servant. And in his functional identity, he causes havoc. I'm going to end with this. In 2 Kings 5, verse 1 to 14, it's a story of Naaman. Naaman, the commander of the king of Syria, the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians... On one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the, in the service of Naaman's wife. So here's a young lady who is a slave who had been carried off in war by Naaman and his army from Israel and brought back to Syria to live in the house of uh, Naaman who was the, the head of the army. This little girl said to her mistress, What would that my Lord were, sorry, what that my Lord were with the prophet? who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told uh, his Lord thus, and spoke that the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So basically this little girl goes to her, the lady that was in charge of her, Naaman's wife, and says to her, There's a, a prophet who can heal my master. Now, I've heard the, the, the imagery of this described before where you can imagine this little servant girl was there washing the breastplate of Naaman when he got back from war and she would wash his blood off the inside as a leper and wash the blood of her family off the outside because he was at war with Israel. And in this place, the servant girl had compassion on her master and said, I know a way that this man can get healed. And she goes and shares with the mistress, which was a risky thing in the first place, to speak of her master's leprosy. The mistress, being uh, Naaman's wife, goes back to Naaman, shares with him this story, and he goes to the king of Syria and shares that there's a man that can heal him. And the king sends a letter to the king of Israel. 
So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pharpar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than all these waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word, and the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, it's an incredible story of the healing that came to Naaman, but I want to look at two characters in the story, the little girl and the king of, of, of Israel. The little girl was a servant, positioned as a servant in the house of Naaman. She understands her identity, has a heart of love and leadership, and she goes and functions as a messenger to the head of her home. She was positioned as a servant, but she acted as a leader. And something incredible happens, but this servant girl's words get taken to the king of Syria who was winning the battle against Israel and so message comes through to the king of Israel the king reads the message and he himself in the position of a king has the heart of a coward and he starts to get fearful of, of the consequences of what's happening And then Elisha comes and has this incredible thing that he and this and this guy is healed. But there's something about this little girl that struck me as probably one of the greatest leadership stories that we can read in, in Scripture. She does what Jesus did. She goes in pursuit of the one who betrayed her and ensures that he receives life. Jesus bends down and washes the feet of Judas. She goes and she washes the the breastplate of her master, the same one who stole her from her people, the same one that has the blood of her family on it. And she ensures that he reaches a place of getting the healing that he deserves in her mind. Now you understand that this man deserves no healing in the context of the, of the, of the, the scripture. Yet for her, there was a compassion that she had. What she could have done is had this information kept it quiet, allowed Naaman to die because he had a death sentence. And as the, the leader of the army, it could have suppressed the impact of the war in Israel. Yet she was a young girl who had a heart of compassion, irrespective of those who were hurting her. 
I want to end off with that, but we need to be a people who understand our identity in God. We position ourselves as servants. We allow our hearts to be that of leading people, guiding people, loving people. And then we get to function in whatever function God's called us to. I get to function as a pastor of Adventure Church. It's merely a function. Jesus got to function as Messiah. It was, it was a function. Never came into the context of replacing his identity. Whatever we function as is part of the outworking of the plan and we have the privilege of doing it. But my encouragement to us is as we lead, may our function never replace our identity. And may we never allow it to be a positional thing. Um, and I share a little bit more on that next week on how we, we perceive leadership in the church context, how we, we, we want to lead the, the hierarchy of leadership and the fact that there isn't one, so don't get nervous for next week. There isn't a hierarchy in leadership. But I want to pray over us, and I want to pray this into this for us. I want to end it there. But Lord Jesus, I just pray that we will be like this young unnamed girl. She never even got named in Scripture, yet she shares such an incredible testimony of what it means to be a leader. I pray that we will be like Uriah the Hittite, who, when given the opportunity to step outside of the battle, he would not betray his people. And he lived as they lived. I pray that we will look to you, Jesus, and we will do as you have done. You've said that this is the example that we should follow. And I pray that we will be prepared to remove our outer garments and wash the feet of those who are yet to betray us. I pray for our influence. I pray for the people that we encounter. Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you just continue to open opportunity, but work in our hearts. Stir this message into us. Allow this to become who we are. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.